right, here we are. Welcome back. Welcome back. And I, I think we should start with like a mea culpa or yeah. uh, there's great been, sadness in, in the in the science in between universe. I'm sure there are folks out there who felt a sense of loss last week <laughs> because they spent a week without you and I in their without headphones. Their quality time with us. I know. So we want to apologize. It's it was this it has been so busy. It has been so busy for us to not be able to find a time to record. And you were like, you were like, how about this time? And I'm like, I can't do that time. How about yeah. this time? And then you, I had family in. You were in Vancouver. It was bananas. Yeah. N-A-N-A-S. Yeah. I, I, I so, yeah, there we are. So so for the first time in the long and august history of this, this very well-received podcast, yes. we have missed a day. We we did not drop an episode which should have dropped yesterday. We had nothing for yeah for the. For the uh, what, what do we have a name for our fans? We don't have a name for our fans, um, do we? The Betweeners. Really? I just made that up. I just made it, that up. I just okay. Totally on the on the fly. Yeah, just where'd like you get that? that? Nowhere. I just in my brain hole. <laughs> <laughs> it's in the title of the podcast. Right? <laughs> Betweeners. Okay, so uh, yeah. If you don't like betweeners and you would like something better, please write in to yeah. Ollie at Millersville.edu. Yeah. Or yeah. or you know, see us. Why don't you see us? Because there's a lot of yeah. you who are just like friends of ours, right? That's true. And say that's yeah. a dumb name. I prefer Scotch Guardians of the Galaxy. <laughs> wow. I know it came right out of my brain hole. <laughs> it just rolls just, off. Just, I mean, what better? What better name could there be? So, so anyway, what this is <laughs> when we do release episodes, this is Science in Between. It is a and, podcast, and I'm and that's Scott. Scott, and I'm Ollie, and that's Ollie. And and what are we talking about today? I, I I don't know. I I will warn the audience that that Ollie warned me that he was shot out of a cannon today. So we may get a lot of hot takes from Ollie. Yeah, um, I am. Just, I am. He's shot ready out to of go. a cannon. It's that happens. You know, ready I'm a morning go. person. We're doing this in the morning, and you know the the endorphins. Uh, endorphins. I think, yeah. Endorphins. I am yeah. all here for the endorphins. <sighs> Love them. Yeah. All right. So, uh, so what we're going to talk about today is actually sort of a part of a podcast. So, uh, so there's a podcast that I believe I've recommended or talked about as a joy. I, on I this. think we both have. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, Michael Lewis, uh, who's an author who, um, has written lots of books, started with Liar's Poker, which was his, he was, a. a a trader on Wall Street and wrote this book, Liar's Poker, about what it's like to be a bond trader. And ever since then, he's just done all it's nonfiction, but very story focused nonfiction. Right. So, and a lot of them have been made into movies, Moneyball being the one that we're sort of talking about today, but The Big Short. There's lots of, lots of these movie books and movies that he's written. He just did one about the pandemic um, and how that was handled in the US. So, he's, he's a really interesting guy, great author. Um, and, great storyteller, great yeah. storyteller too. And I think his exactly. podcast um, was, uh, which is a called "Against the Rules." Against, against the, the rules. rules. I always want to call it "Against the Odds," but it's not. It's against the rules. It's in its third season, and um, last season was about coaching. If you're interested in coaching, go check that season out because it was really, uh, it's really great. Lots of great stories, lots of uh, insight on the coaching process. 
and the benefits of coaching, which I think, you know, plays a role in what we're doing with education. Yep. But I think this season's all about expertise yep. and, and I experts. am fine, experts and what it means to be an expert and what it means, like who is the expert. And, you know, I, like the last episode I've been, it's been mulling around my head episode two, which was talking about uh, the people seven levels down, like yeah, the L six, you know, the L six. All right. Six levels yeah, down. Yeah. That's right. The L six. And the, you know, usually there's the boss and there's someone six levels down who really knows what's going on. And those are the people who are really the experts. And they talk about specifically from the, the healthcare industry, which about the healthcare billing industry and mm-hmm. how these folks were trying to develop like software to make that a little bit more efficient and run more smoothly and they were talking to doctors and doctors didn't know anything. Right. Well, they were, they were trying to build a system that would allow doctors to bill insurance companies and actually get paid because insurance companies were not paying um, and they had all these arcane rules. Right. And so it's about this woman who was, uh, who that Gladys. was her job. Yeah. The, the, and the Gladys. The Gladys. And she, you know, she had figured out all these rules. And so what they literally did was, sat with her, had her talk through this stuff, and then had a, a guy turn that into code and built yeah. s- built software, a software platform out of her brain expertise that was all just in her head. And um which is great, which I think shows a lot to us about like who who are our clients and who are the people who really understand the things that are going on. Cause I think we we often get confused with people who are like, you know, the people with fancy titles, this person was sitting in a windowless office in the basement of a hospital. And she was the one who kept the building and the whole system running, right? Because yeah. if she didn't do her job well, then the whole system was going to crumble. Yeah. And they, would, they would not have received like hundreds of millions of dollars from insurance companies. What, what's interesting is that that's actually not what we're talking about today. <laughs> no, I was going to say, I don't know how we went down this rabbit hole what, with your what? episode two thing. It's right episode now. three that we're that, talking about. I know. And it is. And, and we're not really talking about the, the episode itself. I think it's a springboard for us. Yeah, um, because for sure it is. Yeah. And the, the episode talks a lot about baseball and specifically about Moneyball and sabermetrics. And if you're, you're, I think probably just a few minutes to talk about this would be beneficial. Yeah. Um, if you've seen the movie Moneyball with Brad Pitt, um, you, you probably know what this is. If you haven't, this is the, the primer on sabermetrics and, and Moneyball. Um, basically, before you know, any metrics got into baseball, I mean, there was lots of metrics in baseball, things like batting There's lots average. Of data. A lot of, lots data. of data. That's right. Lots of data. And, and, but most scouting was just happening by people going and watching people play and, and saying, okay, this guy has a lot of potential. This guy could do this. And, and they would collect wins and loss records and, you know, batting averages and things like that, but they would use all of that stuff and people's, you know, just, you know, opinion to be able to make decisions on, on who deserved money, who deserved to be on a team, who would be move up, uh, you know, in the farm system. And so this, this guy, uh, Bill, um, sorry, uh, Bill James, Bill James. Thank you. Bill, Bill James. James. He's just like this, you know, math guy who's just working in, you know, some, he, plant. Was, a, he was a weird little nerd who right. was a custodian, right? I mean, right. He, he took a job as a custodian so that he could do this in his free in time. His, Free time, which was it was a huge baseball time. He was a huge baseball fan, so he's taking all these these this data and saying, okay, there's got to be other ways for that we can look at, you know, how the performance of players and and figure out whether they're adding value to their teams. 
Yeah. So and, he, he, well, just, I think a, a key thing here is that one of the triggers for him when he was, and this is when he was a kid, yeah. um, you know, he's like 10 years old, 11 years old. I don't know. Um, and by the way, when I say weird little nerd, I say that with affection, right? I think of myself as a weird little nerd. So, so that was not a knock against Bill James. I'm but, weirder and littler. <laughs> well, <laughs> maybe the second, I'm not sure about the first. Um, so Bill James was hearing this debate about a player that he cared about. And I do not remember the name of this player, but, but they were talking about how they were going to get rid of him because his batting percentage, his batting average had gone down and he was not contributing quote unquote, contributing uh, offense to the team, but he was a really good defensive player. And, and uh, the, the argument was that he, um, he saved the team one hit by the other team every game that he played in. And so what Bill James said is, well, that seems like if, if what we think about that is him saving a hit is like he was making a hit for his own team. So saving it, uh, uh, you know, stopping the other team from getting a hit is the equivalent of him getting a hit for his team. And then took that into account. He would be the most prolific, uh, hitter in in the major leagues so he's like so we have to kind of think about player value in a in a more interesting or nuanced way and and sort of turn it on its head so that's really what bill james did was he because one of the things that baseball has you know as as ali mentioned baseball has in spades is data they it's a very structured um, almost turn-based kind of game compared to almost any other game. So you can gather a lot of very meticulous data about baseball. And so he started taking advantage of that to, to help teams make decisions about how to value players. And the cool part was he was not like doing this. He was doing this as a fan. He wasn't doing this as somebody He's just who doing was, it for fun, yeah. just doing it for fun and doing it for the other people who were participating in like fantasy baseball, like, you know, drafting teams and, and or whoever, right. He started right. publishing this book, this, this hand Xeroxed book in 1977. That was just his, yeah. th- his thoughts. So, but I think what's, what's great about this episode is I think it harkens back to one of the themes of our show, mm-hmm. right? The themes of our show is the misuse of tools or the misuse of data, right? Mm-hmm. I think that's, that's a theme of the show because we keep talking about how, you know, something gets developed and that this concept then becomes the thing, you know, and then it becomes the thing that this tool that gets used and misused and overused, and then it, it gets, you know, it becomes the thing that people just throw around and that ultimately what happens with, you know, the sabermetrics he creates is that it becomes the system that a lot of baseball teams now use to evaluate players. And they have these, these metrics specifically a metric called war, um, which we don't need to get into the, you know, nuts and bolts of, of that, but it becomes, it becomes the data point that is used to, or one of the major data points. I think it's the, I think that's part of his argument in the, right. in the episode is it has become the de facto way of ranking players. Yeah. And that if you, it's wins above replacement. So it's how, how well you would do against somebody who would replace you. So are you, you know, a, a more valuable contributor to your team than somebody else? And, and that becomes the, the metric that is taken over baseball to evaluate all players. Mm-hmm. And that, I think, is, I mean, and, and, and he recognizes it, right? He recognizes that it has become this, this monster that um, sort of takes the air out of every room, right? It's like, I know I mixed metaphors there, but it's yeah, the did. thing. 
I, you know, I was on a roll. <laughs> you're, yeah, you're fired out of a cannon. You can't be blamed for mixing your metaphors. Yeah. yeah just happening. follow along, you know, yeah. just follow along. But I mean, I think that's, that's the point. And I think, you know, we're seeing some of that happening in education and we're also seeing some pushback against that in education. Mm-hmm. And so while this was all just built up, this is where you and I are, our headspace in is right. in terms of, you know, I think it plays a role in teacher evaluation. It plays a role in, you know, SATs, ACTs, you know, GREs and AP tests and all that. Like, you know, I got a five on the AP test. Well, what does that tell you about like your ability to solve physics problems? What does it tell you about your understanding of physics problems or the ability to, you know, make an argument? You know, those are different things that five doesn't tell us a whole lot about some of those questions. Right. Yeah. So, it, so I think Bill James's big point is, well, he, first of all, he hates this war metric, right? He doesn't like it. He doesn't think that he thinks it's it's um, counterproductive. And I think the way he thinks it's counterproductive is particularly interesting and, and why I, you know, I suggested that maybe we talk about that this or talk about this episode. Um just this idea that the illusion of understanding that is given, and this is another theme that I think we have in our show, right? In a different form, which is, you know, we often talk about how vocabulary in in science classrooms can give the illusion of understanding for the kids, right? So they'll use a word and you'll say, oh, he said photosynthesis. He must understand what that means, right? So there's this illusion that naming the word is what shows that you understand the concept or that you have a deep understanding of what's going on with the science. And I think what Bill James is saying is these numbers that now get used against players often, um, it are give the illusion that you've actually understand this player and their value to a team in the game. And, and he, at one point he says, you know, the universe is so incredibly complicated and complex to think that we are going to develop measures that accurately, and he's talking just about baseball, not even about learning, which is like a whole level more complex. He's saying like, we're, we're giving ourselves the illusion that we actually understand what's going on here and then, and then calling it, you know, then they, they play all these radio clips from people on radio and television saying, well, it's empirical. It's, you know, it's, mo- right. it's a, it's a model. It's, you know, it's tr- gotta be true because it's a number. And just, you know, this, this whole thing that the illusion that quantification leads to clearer, more objective understanding of a phenomenon is just really, it's pervasive and, and uh, pernicious in education. So I think that he's, he's saying the same thing is, is happening in baseball with these war numbers or whatever. I think the, the, the last piece, I mean, this is so rich. The last, like, I'd say like eight to 10 minutes is the, the richest part about this. If you want to skip over the baseball stuff, like zoom to the last, but I think the the one part that was really rich for me was that he talks about all these people who are coming to new you know, ways of thinking, right. And they're, you know, always introduced as the, the money ball guy, right. The next yeah. money ball guy for whatever the money ball for whatever. Yeah. For right. Some new and, thing. Right. And that you're going to, that person's going to like change how we think about this industry. And they talk about like for the housing market or for the healthcare industry. Mm-hmm. But I mean, you think about some of the folks who have, you know, been, you know, identified as those people in education over the last five years. I think about Sal Khan is the one who sticks out to me, you know, like he was going to be the guy who was going to bring new analytics and new measures and new ways of teaching and evaluating and assessing all of it. 
and and yeah it not so much you know no, and, and, and i've seen sal Khan speak and he's he's a really dynamic speaker and he's a you know really thoughtful guy and he has something to say about education but he's not saving education he's just not no and, no and so just to be clear for those of you who don't know who sal Khan is he's the Khan academy guy right so he started by doing these videos to help his i think it was his nephew or something or niece, his niece yeah, yeah do science and math. So he started making these little videos and then he turned it into this giant empire that was going to transform education. You know, it's like the same conversation we, we've had on this show about MOOCs, right? It's like right. this, oh, now Sal Khan has it. He, he's going to make all these videos and now all kids will understand all things for all time. And um, yeah, I mean, it's just the, the naivete of the silver bullet, the naivete of the um, of the metric. I mean, I think that's the the thing that I keep coming back to is just this idea that that these numbers tell us something richer about about the condition or or the state of the our kids and their knowing of things um, than talking with them does. Right? It's like, oh, well, they got an eighty five on the test, so I know what that means. Uh, you know, like you're saying, the GRE score, the SAT score, the whatever score that we give them, and then what we feel like is that we're being more fair, right? Right. And and what they what I think is so incredibly important, especially in education, is and we've talked about this too, but how much unfairness is built into the number. Right. So the number you can say, oh well, numbers are numbers. Like an eighty five is different than an eighty eight, and an eighty eight is better. And it's like, well, yeah, except that it's not because it's not because the the eighty five and the eighty eight don't tell you what is really going on there. They tell you a piece of information, but you're treated as if it's the whole story. Well, and I think that, you know, going back to, to baseball and going back to the episode, I think that that's one of the parts where this is early, where he talks about errors, like errors in baseball. Right. And, and he was talking about how an error in baseball is a judgment call. And while people go, well, you know, this, this player committed X number of errors during the season. Right. He says like when you're, when somebody's making that evaluation, you're not considering, okay, does he have enough talent to be able to do that? Is he, was he mispositioned, you know, because that like, yeah, sure. Maybe he could have got there, but he was, you know, maybe somebody told him to move his place on the field. And so like all of these factors that, you know, actually influence this error judgment. Right. And, and well, that well, is exactly harkens to what you're saying here is that like we use these, these and it looks like an error is a pretty objective measure, but it's right. not objective at all. Yeah. Right. It's just a different way of subjective measuring, subjectively measuring things. Well, and the other thing he was saying about errors that I thought was really fascinating is uh, about this talent piece is like he for the player to have committed an error, he had to be essentially in the right place and doing the right thing. Um, so he was attempting something that may have been incredibly difficult. And the fact that he was even there and able to make a play right. actually is an indication of his expertise and quality. Right. And so this idea that the error is an indication indicator of bad play rather than you could turn it on its head and say, 
actually errors are indications of good play because they're an indication that the player is in position, has the ability to make the play and just didn't. Right. And that's going to happen sometimes, but, but treating it as an error instead of, you know, if that ball had gone by because the, the player was out of position, that doesn't count as an error. That's that, you know, that bad play is not counted as an error because that's not the way the metric works. And so again, there's this, you know, what even the fact even before they have to make the judgment call about whether it's an error or not there's all this weirdness and and uh inconsistency built into the system that has to do with the fact that for an error to even be considered yay or nay the player has to be in position to commit either a play or an error so you know it's it's just fascinating to dig at that level and say well wh- what do these numbers really mean and what are the analogs in education that are like that where you know it's like we talk about kids failing right well for a kid to be able to quote unquote fail in class there they have to be attempting something and the attempt is what we're actually interested in not the failure we're interested in the fact that they're attempting to do this thing and then so that's just like an error right like we don't want to say oh that was a failure what we want to say is that was a a, an attempt that we want to judge as a positive thing, but that's not the way it gets treated. Right. And the attempt itself, I mean, the failure is not as important as the information that the attempt gives us, because that's the stuff that's rich that can inform what we can do with the student and how we can move him and help them develop and and learn. You know, I think that's the the critical part. You know, it's what's, what's interesting to me is that, you know, when I started my doctoral work about 15 years ago, 17 years ago, I came to Penn State with the idea that I was going to do quantitative work, mm. you know, because sure. as a physics person, I was really thinking, okay, the, the numbers and the data and the statistics and all that stuff really, you know, resonated with me. Right. It'll give then you I, ob- objective ways to understand teaching, right. for example. And then I got to Penn State, and maybe it was from interacting with you or from other people. Um, I realized the, the things that I found really interesting, the questions I really had were, and the ones that I thought could influence my work as a teacher the most were, were qualitative questions, were the ones that were not really easily answered by just throwing some numbers at things. And I don't mean to discredit quantitative work, because I think there might be a place for that with different things, certainly with medical you know, situations and, um, and so on. But I think that you know, for me as a teacher, the things that I find the most valuable are the are the, the qualitative kinds of questions. And it's like, okay, here's the impact and here's how it influenced things. And these, this is what we learned from talking with, you know, our participants and so on. And that to me, I think it is, it, it that's the analog here. That's the, the part that to, to me that, you know, really, um, you know, tells us, I mean, then, I, then I ask myself, well, what are the, what, like, where are numbers? Okay. Right. Like, where do we use them? We're like, well, where, I think, where? yeah, I, th- I think they're super useful as long as you understand them in the, con- I mean, it's like any other thing, right? I mean, it's, it's like, you know, again, going back to the, the, the scientific language with kids, like, it's not that you don't want kids to use scientific language. You do. You just want to make sure that they understand the scientific language they're using um, and not just using it to cover up things that they don't understand. Right. And I think the same is true with numbers. Like numbers are incredibly powerful and useful, um, ways of representing our understandings about the world. I mean, there are so many things in our world that wouldn't exist if we couldn't have quantified, right? So I'm not anti-quantification, and I know you're not saying that, that you're not, right. you're not anti-quantification, but I do think the other thing is that humans are fundamental 
fundamentally storytellers. Like that's the way we communicate most of our stuff. And so even with numbers, what ends up happening is we tell a story about those numbers. Well, the problem is if the numbers uh, don't comport with the story because of things underlying the numbers that were built into them that we ignore, then that can let, let us tell stories about those numbers that are, un, that are fundamentally untrue, but sound like they're grounded because the number obscures the data that is behind it, right? It, all, the, all the meaning and the power that's behind that number is obscured by the number, and it's just a 36 now instead of something else. Yeah. The complexity of things is hidden by the number. That's right. Right. And we we're like, oh, this is a like a five and that's, you know, better than a, a seven or something. And it's just like, hold on. You know, there's a lot of more complexity that goes on there. Like, and I think that's probably why we're seeing some schools like they're moving away from like, I'm talking specifically colleges that are moving away from the SATs. I mean, the pandemic sort of like, you know, caused that to happen. It was like the you know, catalyst for a lot of schools to say, Hey, you know what, we're just going to go test, test optional this year. Um, and then we're finding that many schools are not going back that they're just going, you know what, those, those measures are not helping us decide the, the quality of the candidates. Um, and I think that can, that's really powerful. That is like really important stuff because we have folks who are coming from different backgrounds and different settings who may have lots of potential for success. And that complexity of, of their potential is maybe hidden because of, you know, I mean, there's an industry, right? There's an SAT industry in which people can, you know, take all these practice tests, but that comes from privilege, right? You can, if you're going to, you know, really want to game the SATs, you got to have to have some money behind you. Mm -hmm. And and so if you're coming from a really wealthy background, you can you know, go to SAT prep classes, you can go through multiple, you know, practice tests and, and, and all that so that you're ready for it. Yeah. You know, for some, for some folks they are getting like a voucher to take the test just once and they're going in largely having not seen the test before, or maybe have talked about it before and say, so they don't know all the strategies on how to, you know, you know, game it. And mm-hmm. so that's an unequal playing field. So somebody getting like a 1500 and somebody else getting an 1100 doesn't tell us anything about their true potential and ability to learn. And, and, and that captures it all. And the fact that many schools are just moving away from that as an, a, a measure to influence decisions, I think is, is, is a great starting point. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think it's interesting. Like there, there's, you know, as, as with all things, there are multiple sides and facets to this. Um, and you know, the SAT is no exception. I mean, I, I heard, I'm trying to remember, I'll, I'll see if I can find this research. I, there's a researcher at Penn state who was doing work in admissions, higher ed admissions and looking at random admissions so that you randomly pick your pool of, of students that you're going to accept out of the applicants that have applied, right? You just randomly pick, don't look at any metrics, don't look at anything and seeing like, what would that have done to, um, you know, to the success of those students after? And what does that do, you know, to the, the sort of economics on some level or the, the, the admissions process at a national level, right? Can, and you can imagine, right? The, the, admissions is full of privilege. It's not just SAT. It's all, all sorts of things that, that are influenced by privilege, um, in that process. But then, 
Um, the 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 counterpoint, which I I'm, I started to mention this before the show to you, Ali, is this guy John McWhorter, who's a who's a columnist for the New York Times, and was talking about the elimination of this argument that SAT should be eliminated because it there's an equity component to it. Uh, specifically, there was a race based equity component because his his commentaries are he's a linguist, but he comment, comments on race. His his uh, and he's black, and this is important because what he says is actually eliminating the SAT to try and promote uh, black students being admitted is is a soft bigotry of low expectations. He said that the problem isn't that the problem is that we need to figure out ways to help support black students in in being successful at the SAT so that they can represent their abilities in the same way that white or, or other, you know, other identifiers We're not just talking about black and white race, but um, so I think, I think it's, you know, it's always so complex, these issues of like, how do we decide if a thing is good or bad? Um, but always what it is, is that, 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 that number does obscure the complexity that's there and, and how do, how do universities deal with that? Right. So, okay. We eliminate the SAT. Well, how do we make decisions now about how kids get admitted? Do we do we do it by GPA? Do we read? I mean, Penn State gets, I don't know, 25, 30,000 applications uh, a year. Like, how, how do you differentiate those down into a group of, you know, roughly eight, eight to 10,000 kids that you're going to accept? Um, you know, it's it's also a, a scale problem. Like, how do you manage that complexity? How do we think about that? And and, uh, you know, there's well, not easy answers to that either. Well, I think, you know, going back to the, the essay, it's McWhorter. Is that what you said? McWhorter? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, well, well, I agree with this argument. I, I, I worry a little bit about using the SATs as the, as the measure of success, right? That is the thing. It's like, okay, yeah, if, if this is, we're going to hold this up as the measure of success of folks, you know, academics, well, it's not they're, the they're, only measure. I know, right? I know, I mean, but no, but if we were like, if we were doing, you know, things like, you know, persistence rates or graduation rates or other, which are much more important data points or measures, right? Then this piece of data that comes from a, a test and this, you know, it's really a business. It's a business. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I don't know what your SAT score was. I don't, I, barely remember mine and has that impacted my success in life well i mean maybe it helped me get into the college i wanted to but outside of that it has really influenced my life in very little ways mm-hmm. you know and so to talk about it is like it is being this the, the a measure of success and that removing that success that that measure as being so i i think it's just short-sighted from my perspective because it's like there are better measures let's focus on those you know rather than like or better standards i think might be rather than moving away from like this you know talking about like the sat as being that the measure of standard of success let's let's look at other things you know yeah and i want to be clear i'm not i'm not saying i'm pro sat but i think you know that there are you know if we say okay we're going to have other measures that's that's easy to say and much more difficult to execute again if we're going to talk about 40,000 applications or whatever it is 30,000 applications um 
you know, even even if you're going to read all those, somebody has to rank order them. Somebody right. has to decide who's in and who's out. And you have to have criteria for that. Because if you don't have criteria, now you're in a much messier position where, um, you know, sort of bias and inequity sneaks into the system in the usual ways, which are right. the ways of, you know, that we have a white supremacist system. And so therefore, it's going to favor certain people that meet those those characteristics and 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 Im, that'll happen implicitly as part of the process because that's the way the system's set up. So so then you have a problem of like, well, how do you deal with it? Uh, you know, if you're going to eliminate SATs, that's all well well and good, but you have to have some more equitable system. You know, this is like the people who say who used to talk about like the the learning science nerds back in the 2000s who were like, we should just tear down schools and put every kid in front of a computer, and that will right. solve all these problems. It's like, well, when you tear down the system. The, the notion is that what replaces it is going to be better, but there's lots of evidence that, that doesn't always work that way. But I think what, what this demonstrates, just this whole conversation demonstrates, is exactly the conversation around war, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Is that, okay, you know, all these baseball analysts and, and sportscasters have jumped on war as the analytic of choice. And all of these colleges have jumped on an SAT has been the measure of choice. And then when we reached a position, you know, because of the pandemic, that that measure was not available to a lot of people, then we recognized how complex the system is. Mm-hmm. It's much more complex than this number. You know, now I, wouldn't, I know that lots of colleges, most colleges, you know, weren't just basing it on SATs. Mm-hmm. But the, that SAT is it is embedded in so much, not just for that individual student, but also in the profile of incoming classes, which feeds into U.S. News and World Report rankings mm-hmm. and all of that. And so it is ingrained in the system. Mm-hmm. And that's the part that it shows us how complex you know, learning and measuring student learning and you know reporting on student learning and identifying who gets in the college and who gets into what college, how complex that system really is. Yeah. And and we're fooling ourselves to think that the SAT is just the is the measure, just like the war folks are. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I agree. I mean, I think there the um that hiding of, I mean, and it goes all the way down. Like you can talk about who gets into gifted programs and who, right? Um, and you know, there's also that that notion of of small differences early on make. You know, you were saying like, well, the SAT maybe let me get into the college of my choice, but otherwise it didn't have much impact on my life. But okay, let's talk about that. Like, if you hadn't got into the college of your choice that probably would have changed your trajectory significantly, right? Like you might not have met your wife. You might not have majored in physics. You might not have become a teacher. Like there's so many things that might sure. have happened if you hadn't gone to that. So there's, there's, um, there's all this complexity in the system that way. I mean, it's, I, I Scott, I applied to one college. <laughs> well, there you go. So you didn't get it. <laughs> so I had yeah. no backup plan. I guess I would have yeah. figured something out, but I had no backup plan. I applied to one college and I was like, Oh, yeah. you know, that's what I did too. But, but even that is a privilege, right? I mean, that, that's, but um, yeah, I mean, I think, I think this is, is just a fascinating question that, that we have to grapple with in education to think about. Um, well, I don't know, maybe that, maybe the even more fundamental question, I mean, in baseball, it has, I guess it has to happen. I don't know, but, but this idea of like sorting and ranking uh, humans for various reasons uh, is a really interesting 
like notion to say that this person is better than that person first on some, and it, you know, we understand that people are different, but this, this, um, idea of that is really, uh, yeah, it's sort of, I mean, it, it certainly would, I think you and I have both as both teachers, K-12 teachers, and as higher ed faculty have struggled with the notion of grades, right? Which is a, a sure. and I think I've told this story before, um, but if not, I'll, I'll tell it now, which is um, my, my doctoral student who was teaching our first, the first in our two course methods sequence, which is a science, science ed 411. So this is JD McCausland. He, he did an exercise with that group where he was doing the first day syllabus and he had marked different parts that he wanted feedback on. And one of them was the grading scale, right? And um, so they were talking through that and, you know, st- uh, students were saying, you know, it was the standard Penn State grading scale, which I think 93 and up is an A. And then it's like, I forget all the grading graditions, but that was the key one. And, and they were like, yeah, it really stresses me out that it's like a 93 and above is, is an A. Like, I really want to get an A. And I, I, that's, that's really hard. So he said, well, would you feel more comfortable if, um, if we made it 80 and up is an A? And you, like, you could see the palpable relief, like the students right. are like, oh, yes, that would be so awesome. And then, um, and then JD said, well, what if we made it 70 and up is an A? And they were like, well, I mean, well, I'm not, I'm not so sure about that. And then I asked from the back, well, what if we made it 50 and up is an A? And they're like, well, absolutely not because then nobody would do any work like, and, and no, like everybody would slack off because 50 and up, you know, just now the A doesn't mean anything. And that conversation, watching them sort of like think through this idea that we've, we've, we've made this arbitrary line that constitutes high quality, which goes back to a a deep assumption about distribution, right? I mean, the, the whole ABCD grading system comes out of the bell curve right? and, and how pernicious the bell curve is as a way of thinking about human beings. But it was it but, just, but, but it gives us, it gives us, well, us, um, you know, your students, those students, some comfort to think that, okay, you've, you've got to work, but we still want to sort, we still want to sort people, right? right. We, st- we still want to sort people because if everybody's getting A's, then, then I don't have to try. Right. right. And it's and, just like, and who's, and how will we know who the good students are right. if, if everybody gets an A? Yeah. versus the bad students. And we need to know that. We need to know who the bad students are. Yeah, I'm it, I'm we're recording this. I I was kind of holding off talking about this, but I'll talk about it anyway. Okay. You know, we're at, at our university, we um this is going to get into academics. So if you're a non you're not working in higher education, this may not seem interesting to you, but I apologize. You know, promotion and tenure is a big huge thing at, mm-hmm. at universities. Like so you come in at and an assistant professor, and then, you know, through some sort of promotion and tenure process, that's different at every institution. You get tenure, which means that you can stay at the university. Even that in itself, some schools, it's really hard to get tenure, but it's really easy to get promoted. Mm-hmm. Other places, it's really easy to get tenure. Well, it's really hard to get promoted. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you get promoted to associate professor, and then you get promoted to full. And yeah. and so you and I are both full, so we've kind of navigated this road. You're actually on your promotion and tenure price. I am. Yeah. Congratulations to you, to my friend. And so we've both navigated this process at our, at our respective institutions. Um, but our institution uses something that is really foreign in higher education that we rank candidates. Yeah. 
And so there's all these things that happen behind the scenes that, you know, a committee of, of faculty participate in this, but it comes out with a rank. Now that's something that has been not a fact. Well, it's, it is. Well, the, and the ranking so, is public. It's made public, right? Well, it's not public. I mean, it's, it's, you, it's told to individual candidates. Like I see. You, you, you get an e- in email that says you are, you know, somebody gets uh, a letter that says you're one out of 24 and right. somebody gets a letter that says they're 24 out of 24. Yeah. And, and while it's not publicly like displayed in the hallway or anything, it sort of gets out and people in maybe not like all the numbers, but you sort of divine who is where, and it is the most challenging process because people feel like that number has, I mean, it does have value because it does communicate who, who's going to get promoted. Because at some place, it's not like there's a, there's a, an objective. Okay. The first five people get promoted or first 12 people get promoted. That, that number changes who gets promoted changes every year based on some sort of system that our provost adopts. But the, the challenge is that that number, you know, both good and bad, says something about the candidate that they internalize moving from that point forward. Yep. So if you get like a five, you feel differently than the person who gets a one, mm-hmm. even though they both are potentially going to get promoted. Yep. Um, and that I think is that ranking system is the part that's the per- most pernicious, right? It's yeah. like, let's put this rank on it. And like, as if like comparing and sorting can help us, you know, value the work that people do and the contributions they make, yeah. just like the war does for baseball players, just like anything else that's class rank in schools. It's, it's so permission, pernicious, and it's just so tough to break. It's also tough culturally on our campus, you know, and, and, and I say this because, you know, we're recording this right around the time when the decisions, all that stuff's happening, yeah. all the stuff is happening. Letters are going to be coming out. And, and I know that people are, some folks who are listening to this are going to be getting those letters and it's going to mm-hmm. be like, oh, bananas. And it's so hard. It is so hard to work in a space like that. Um, yeah. But then it's the, the challenge is how to improve it, right? How to improve right. it because there's a, a group of people who are just like that. If 50% of the people get A's or if 50% is the break off for the A, then no one's going to work. And there's some people, if we don't sort, then how are we going to be able to like ta- say who's the people who are really doing good work and who are the people who are not really doing good work as well? Hold on. Everybody here is doing some really awesome work. And then but if everybody gets promoted, then the people won't work. And it's like, oh, come on. You yeah. know, it's that sort of like ingrained cultural thing that's really challenging yeah and and you know the truth is that that there are edge cases too where if if there aren't metrics if there isn't uh some accountability however you want to describe that there are people who will take advantage of the system now that i think those are the vast majority or minority like they're very small numbers of those people but i do think like there is this question of how do you decide how people um, get valued, and and that is a, a tricky thing. I mean, I'll, I'll say one other thing about that that is even worse than what you're describing in Millersville, and I won't say what institution this is, but but I have a number of friends who are at a an institution where basically everything you do accumulates points. Um, so if you get a journal article 
it gets this many points, but if it's in a, you know, an indexed high impact journal, it gets this many more points. And if you teach a class, it's this many points, but if you get, you know, student, uh, evaluations that are higher than a certain mark, you get more points and all this stuff, you get points for everything. Wow. But here, here's the worst thing. So that's bad. The worst thing is they do publicly post this with everybody's score at the end of the year. So they, they make those numbers available and they say, Ali Dreon's score for this year was, you know, 215 and Scott McDonald's score was 106. And, you know, they, and they rank order them. And it, you know, the idea is that it's to motivate faculty at this institution, but it is, it is not a, a healthy, it does not create a healthy working environment. Oh, I can imagine. I can imagine that that the culture on that campus, because there are going to be folks who, who just by the nature of, of their, you know, their family situation, their home life, their whatever, we're not going to be able to do, I mean, there's just so many factors. Again, it comes back to the complexity. It right. comes back to the complexity that that number hides, hides, a bunch the, of complexity. hides yeah. the complexity of what's really going on. And so just like that, you know, rank that, you know, folks are going to get, they're going to, it's going to hide the complexity of their school life, their home life, their, you know, all of it. And it hide the other thing it hides that's related to that complexity that we've also talked about on this show in, in various ways is it hides the human decision making that went into how that number gets produced, right? Right. So how did they decide what an article is worth? Like, did they sit down and say, okay, well, the average article takes this many hours, and so that's the equivalent of this much of a class. So a class has that, you know, I mean, I'm sure they yeah. didn't do that. They have wow. so they, you know, so that all the human decision-making that determines the value of all the pieces that make up that number is also hidden. So, so not only is the complexity hidden, the human decision-making that made that number, what it is, is hidden. And and both of those lead to, you know, bad outcomes. I, I, I found it hard for me to imagine a system that was worse than the one we have, but that is there there it is. So, you know, but I think now we should transition to joys because we're, we've sort Before of we do that. I think here. I think there's a uh, a topic down the road we have to discuss is what what factors, what things are good to apply numbers to. I think that's what we have to we have to think about that because I okay. think there's a there's an episode there. I don't th- know what I don't know. We have to think through that. Like, what are the things that numbers are good for? Yeah, 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 yeah. Because there are maybe. No, I think there are. We just, you know, I think we both know that there are. I mean, the question is, I think the question you're really asking is within the scope of teaching and learning, right? Where where can we find valuable uses of numbers to help us understand phenomenon related right. to, to teaching and learning? That is the eloquent way of saying what yeah. I was trying to say. Thank you, Scott. My there you pleasure. Go. That's what I'm here for. All right. Joyce, uh, do you have some Joyce? I have a joy. I have a joy for this week. So <clears throat> I actually have two, but I'm only going to share one. So um, I am going to choose, this is hard actually, but I'm going to choose, I think, Abbott Elementary, um, which is a television show that's ostensibly on ABC, but I don't know that anybody watches stuff on actual television anymore. So we watch it on Hulu, I think. I think it's on Hulu. Yeah, that sounds about right. But um, it is... <clears throat> I should I should find the woman's name who's the so the star of the show is also the showrunner and the the creator of the show and the writer 
Um, and it, but it, but it's a show about an elementary school in Philadelphia. So it's shout out to Pennsylvania. Um, and it's, it's, you know, it's got a Ted lasso vibe to it. I got to admit in the sense that it's, it's pretty, um, it's nice. I mean, it's funny, but it's not cruel. Um, and it really, but it also really exposes some deep issues and inconsistencies and troubling things about public education. Um, and particularly in underfunded, under-resourced public schools in urban environments. So, but that said, it's also hilarious and awesome. Um, and the star of the show is a second grade teacher. And she's like this idealistic young woman who just wants to, you know, teach and wants to do right by her students. Um, but then there's all these little, it's, it's a very, got a very office sort of vibe in the sense that there's a lot of characters talking directly to the audience, you know, oh, breaking yeah. the fourth wall and sort of sure. talking to them. Um, but that said, because, because the idea is there's a mockumentary, it's a, it's a mockumentary style, right? That there's a camera crew in this elementary school doing a documentary about the elementary school to try and show how underfunded schools operate. And, uh, but anyway, great show, super heartwarming, funny, awesomeness. And, uh, I haven't, I haven't watched the whole thing yet. We're about halfway through the first season, but, um, but really good fun. So yeah, uh, Tanya, my wife is watching it. So, um, I'll have to check it out. You You should. Sounds great. It's it's pretty awesome. So about you, uh, mine is a musical one. I talked about a little before the show is the new Jack White album. It dropped recently. Um, I, I've talked before about my fan. Of, uh, I'm a fan of the White Stripes, which is you know Save the Nation Army and all that. And you know, you, you if you've been to a sporting event or seen one on TV, you know you know who the yeah. White Stripes are because they're always playing it to pump up the crowd. Um, but his new album, uh, Fear of the Dawn, is awesome. It is awesome. And you know, some people are talking about it as being the album of the year. It is eclectic. It is also um, really, if you kind of like that, like old school heart thumping rock and roll, this is, it's got everything for you because it's got a lot of really strong bass lines and drums. And I'm, uh, he, he's on tour right now. Um, he was just in like Detroit and Chicago and Cincinnati. He's coming to Pittsburgh. Me and my family are going to go see them, see him play. Mm-hmm. It is, I'm so excited because this is, uh, you know, White Stripes were one of those, uh, uh, you know, groups I wish I'd seen back in the day, but um, missed them. And now I'm going to get to see Jack White and I am looking forward to it. And this album and just taking me back. What's cool is if you're on Spotify, there's actually two versions. There's one that's like uh, kind of uh, more rocky. And then there's also like kind of a bluegrassy version he did called hmm. taking me back. And it's in like parentheses gently or, you know, and it both versions are really great. It's kind of weird to see how the same song can be re-envisioned um, so differently. So definitely check it out. Uh, take uh, taking me back and also uh, Fear the Dawn. Jack White, nice. awesome, yeah, nice. And I'll, I'm just gonna say real quick, uh, Quinta Brunson is the the woman who's the the star of the show who plays Janine Teagues, the second grade teacher, and and is the showrunner for that. But we'll we'll put both. Jack White's new album and Abbott Elementary in the show notes, so you can you can go yeah. check those out for yourself. Yeah, and also the Michael Lewis podcast. We'll put that in the show notes too. We will. Uh, yeah. So you can check that, that out. Yeah, definitely been recommended by us before, but season three is well worth it. And just 
to encapsulate all three of those, the first one was about referees. So referees, yeah. coaches, and now experts. That's so, right. I forgot um, the I forgot the referees was the first season, but that was a good yeah, one too. That yeah. was a great one. The first yeah. episode of that. If you want to know how to make a great podcast, do not listen to our podcast. No. Go and listen to Michael Lewis's first episode of um, Against the Rules, where he talks about NBA referees, which is just a phenomenal episode. So yeah, that whole se- that whole show is just awesome. So all right, hey, <sighs> hey. It was good seeing you. Hey, and and we'll see you. I guarantee you're going to see it here from us again next week. So yes. We'll, we'll see you then. We, we will never miss an episode again. Oh, you can't say that. No, you I can't, can't say that. Uh, I know. You can't. But, you know, we'll catch you next time. In between. See you then. Bye now. Bye now.